0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and let's start again on CT of acute pancreatitis. We mentioned the complications, necrosis, abscess, hemorrhagic pancreatitis, and pseudoaneurysm. And pancreatic necrosis is a challenge because here you see very nicely the air and necrotic gland. When you see necrosis, that's somewhat easy because of the lack of glandular enhancement, and then we try to quantify 30%, 50%, 70%. But how do you know when you have abscess? That can be somewhat challenging. Hemorrhage is high density. Abscess, you need to see air bubbles. But if you see air bubbles, only 20% of abscesses will you diagnose. So it's somewhat challenging. With hemorrhagic pancreatitis, you see areas of high density. You may see the active site of bleeding. You may see a pseudoaneurysm off the GDA, perhaps, or splenic artery or hepatic artery. Or you may see a case like this where you see the very much high density present. And uh, you can see at the circle there, but I don't see the vessel actively bleeding. Well, you can see in this case, large pseudocysts in the lesser sac with high density material. This is obviously hemorrhage. This is an older slide that I tend to like, but at this point we did not see the active site of bleeding. Or this example, large pseudocyst. Now, a pseudocyst itself can erode adjacent vessels, which may explain why you're getting bleeding. But you can see that very nicely here, the large pseudocyst, also a component pushing on the left lobe of the liver. And in coronal views, very, very impressive the size of the pseudocyst and the hemorrhage that's being seen, including in this example. With hemorrhagic pancreatitis, Over time, the lesion typically gets less dense, but patients can bleed at multiple different time points. Here's a good example of multiple high-density zones and the change from prior studies. Here's another example, same patient, multiple areas of hemorrhage. So one of the things about hemorrhage is when you suspect hemorrhage, you do CT angiography looking for the site of bleeding, pseudoaneurysms are the typical cause. However, it should be noted that sometimes we just can't find the site of bleeding. Now, as I mentioned, looking for the vessels, we look at aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms. If I discuss vessels, I also should mention portal vein thrombosis or occlusion, as well as splenic vein thrombosis or occlusion. With pseudoaneurysms, typically I've seen them in patients who've had repeated episodes of pancreatitis because typically what has to happen is the enzymes weaken the arterial wall. So it's usually a patient with repeated episodes of pancreatitis, typically not their first case. Common sites of pseudoaneurysm, number one, a splenic artery, then GDA, pancreatic gastric, and finally hepatic artery. Arterial phase imaging is critical. The mortality is over 90% of a pseudoaneurysm ruptures. And here's a very nice example. Inflammation tail of pancreas, what looks like a pseudocyst. Then you see what looks like a bright, under one centimeter, high density structure, which when you look at the full set of MIP images, comes off the patient's splenic artery. That was a splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. Here's another example with a larger splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. This was a great case because the patient's outside study didn't show a pseudoaneurysm because what happened in this case was that initially the bleed had compressed the pseudoaneurysm, so it wasn't visualized. But here, you can see it very nicely, a very nice example of a pseudoaneurysm. Another example, a large pseudoaneurysm uh, is following pancreatitis. Now, this case does make a point that if you did not give IV contrast, perhaps this would look like a high-density cyst or pseudocyst. So you want to be very careful. If you're thinking about dropping CRIT, you need to give IV contrast. Another example, a very large splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. You can see some of the bleed that is present. With pancreatitis, we also get venous occlusion. In part, that's due to compression. Portal vein, splenic vein, SMV are all involved, but portal vein most commonly. Classic presentation is variable from acute abdominal pain to subacute pain to uh, no specific clinical symptoms. Nice example of a large pseudocyst pushing on the portal vein and SMV. You can see the collaterals. Here's the 3D map showing you the collaterals in the stomach. Uh, Retroperitoneal collaterals, prominent vessels in the mesentery. Or this case, we see cavernous transformation of the portal vein due to a patient with pancreatitis. Chronic pancreatitis typically, as in this case, you see the dilated pancreatic duct. You see some of the stranding in the gland and you see the inflammation by the head of the pancreas with collateral flow seen. Now, one of the things about pancreatitis is it does not respect tissue planes. The tail of the pancreas sits in the splenic hilum, sits identically located to the artery and vein, and there's a bare area. And so it's easy for pseudocysts to track inside the spleen. So you can get intrasplenic pseudocysts. You can get intrasplenic hematomas. We can get abscess, and we can get infarcts. So if you look at this case, multiple cystic lesions in the spleen, These were splenic infarcts. The patient has evidence of uh, a large pseudocyst present. You can see some thickening and nodularity in the pseudocyst or in the cystic lesion, but you can see the compression of the cystic lesion, stranding, and the vascular map very nicely shown in this regard. We could talk about fluid collections, tracking beneath organs. In the spleen, we talk about pseudocyst tracking subcapsularly, causing mass effect. One of the challenges with these patients, often are patients with chronic pancreatitis or repeated episodes of pancreatitis and with even very minor trauma, the spleen can rupture. So again, you need to be very careful in what you're looking at in that regard. Now, in terms of the classification, Everything I mentioned to you is true, but how do we describe things differently now? Well, this classification was a modification in 2012 of the Atlanta classification. There are a lot of definitions involved. The aim of this study is to update the original 1991 Atlanta classification of acute pancreatitis to standardize reporting of disease and complications. Important features of this new classification have incorporated the new insights for the past 20 years, including the recognition that acute pancreatitis and its complications involve a dynamic process involving two phases, early and late. The accurate and consistent description of the two types of pancreatitis and its severity is a way of being able to look at management across institutions and try to figure out some strategies in the best patient management. By using a common terminology, the advancement of the science of acute pancreatitis should be facilitated. And that's a very important point. We really want to improve our management of patients, but unless we have all the information, it's hard to do it. So let's take a step backwards. How do we, in this new brave world, make the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis? It requires two of the following three features. Central upper abdominal pain, usually of acute onset, often radiating through to the back. And amylase or lipase serum levels greater than three times normal or characteristic features on cross-sectional abdominal imaging consistent with acute pancreatitis. So again, you may only need two of these, and perhaps you can do the first two and then not not need imaging, okay? Now, I mentioned before that we now divide acute pancreatitis into two groups, interstitial edematous pancreatitis and necrotizing pancreatitis. Definitions are critical. Interstitial edematous pancreatitis Inflammation of the pancreatic parenchyma and peripancreatic tissues, but without tissue necrosis and necrotizing pancreatitis, inflammation with necrosis in the gland typically or in the peripancreatic tissues. There are several findings. If you look at the details of the 2012 conference, interstitial edematous pancreatitis, remember the words IEP, Majority, up to 90% of patients presenting with a clinical picture of acute pancreatitis will have this mild form. The differentiating characteristics of acute interstitial edematous pancreatitis is the lack of pancreatic necrosis or parenchymal or peripancreatic necrosis evident on imaging. That indeed becomes very important. The hallmark as you go from interstitial edematous pancreatitis to necrotizing pancreatitis It's the presence of tissue necrosis, either of the pancreatic parenchyma proper or the peripancreatic tissues. Necrotizing pancreatitis most commonly involves the parenchyma and the tissues together or the peripancreatic tissues alone. Rarely, the necrosis is limited to the pancreatic parenchyma. So again, you could see it's kind of a dynamic disease with one stage moving into the next, and that's where the management issues become difficult. This patient had necrotizing pancreatitis. It was in their 30s. You can see the fluid, the high density, maybe some hemorrhage. You can see as you track this, it goes down to involve the psoas muscle and iliopsoas muscle. Here it is on coronal views. Uh, this patient expired. This patient had a necrotizing pancreatitis. Now, when you look at it, you say, wow, the model enhancement, the effusions, you have to be very careful. We talk about other key terms. Acute peripancreatic fluid collections. That's peripancreatic fluid with interstitial edematous pancreatitis but no peripancreatic necrosis. This term applies to peripancreatic fluids seen within the first four weeks after the onset of interstitial edematous pancreatitis. So one thing the definition also does is look at timing. Again, we said under one week, you don't typically need imaging, but then the management under versus over four weeks. We talk about terms like pseudocyst, which is an encapsulated fluid collection with minimal no necrosis with a well-defined inflammatory wall. This entity occurs more than four weeks after the onset of uh, interstitial edematous pancreatitis. We also talk about acute necrotic collection, which is a collection of fluid and necrosis associated with necrotizing pancreatitis involving the pancreatic parenchyma and the peripancreatic tissues. And then we have a third term, Waldorf necrosis, WON, mature encapsulated collection of pancreatic and the peripancreatic necrosis with a well-defined inflammatory wall occurring more than four weeks after the onset of necrotizing pancreatitis. So again, the timing under versus over four weeks. We talk about this classification. uh, Zhao in this article talking about the role of imaging in the revised Atlanta classification makes several points. Pseudocysts are encapsulated cystic lesions filled with amylase fluid that complicate up to 20% of cases of pancreatitis. So again, many of these will resolve on their own, but it's a small percent. Many pseudocyst-associated complications and symptoms, such as gastric outlet obstruction, leading to early sciety and nausea, are secondary to mass effect. Pseudocysts are problematic because they cause mass effect, they can erode into vessels and lead to pseudoaneurysms. Hemorrhage within a pseudocyst following an attack of pancreatitis is generally not due to pseudoaneurysm rupture, but bleeding from an intramural capillaries within the pseudocyst or retroperitoneum. So that's something to consider. Zhao also says that any collection complicating acute pancreatitis can become secondarily affected. The diagnosis of infection can be difficult on imaging. Gas within a collection is the most sensitive imaging finding for infection, but is only seen in less than 18% of cases. However, gas is not path and can alternatively indicate fistulization. Again, we're looking for air. For necrosis, but you don't need to see that. A more common thing is to see a relatively low density modeled appearance, and that is indeed very important. Now, hopefully I've kind of classified or explained a little bit better the uh, classification, and as well, it's good to read the articles, and I've listed them on your handout. That goes with this talk and on the slides. I should mention just a couple things in passing. We talk about autoimmune pancreatitis being challenging and goes by different names. We talk about it being a form of chronic pancreatitis that often presents acutely with a lymphoplasmocytic infiltration. We talk about the key findings including uh, elevated immunoglobulin G4, the response to steroids and the like. We know the age is a spectrum, but is more commonly over 50, men more common than women. And when you look at the clinical presentation, join this abdominal pain, weight loss, diabetes, these are all the same criteria, the same things we think about with cancer. Autoimmune pancreatitis is confused with cancer more than just on imaging, because again, let me reiterate, weight loss, pancreatitis, no history of that, CA 99 elevated, and often a mass in the pancreas. So autoimmune pancreatitis is unique. I bring it up because if you think about it, you can save the patient off in a Whipples procedure, make an easy diagnosis. If not, uh, you'll miss it. It can be challenging. The thing about autoimmune pancreatitis is the gland's enlarged, but you lose the lobular texture. It's what's called a featureless gland. You don't see a dilated duct typically present, and there's a halo often around the gland. So you look at this case, look at the pancreas, look at the halo around the gland. The gland is diffusely enlarged, but the pancreatic duct is not dilated. Inflammation, but no dilatation. There's like a cigar-shaped configuration. There it is again. And then the patient is treated with steroids, uh, typically 40 milligrams of steroids every day for two weeks. And then you go from a case like this where the patient presents with jaundice mass in the head of the pancreas but no pancreatic duct dilatation to this where the gland is slightly enlarged but the obstruction is abating to go to here where look how small the gland has become so you could see that with autoimmune pancreatitis you get a wonderful response now I'll just give you one more image. Here it is pre and post again. Now it's important to recognize that even though we're thinking about autoimmune pancreatitis, you don't always make the diagnosis because sometimes it looks just like pancreatic cancer and may have a biopsy that's concerning for pre-malignancy or concerning for malignancy. So it is a challenge. If in doubt, get an IG4 level. Another thing that can be helpful with autoimmune pancreatitis, you can have other organ involvement from bowel, to kidneys, and you can see here the autoimmune pancreatitis with what appears to be an infarct in the uh, patient's right kidney. So I reviewed some of the pancreatitis literature with you, I've gone through the new classification. Important to recognize that CT allows the rapid triage of patients with known or suspected pancreatitis. Patient management is based on the CT findings which can often predict outcome. CT is the most valuable study in looking for the complications of pancreatitis. For the simple cases, there's no need for CT. The revised Atlanta classification is going to become more important in your practice, so it's important you learn it. And again, I think uh, that can be very helpful. And hopefully, if we all follow the classification, it'll be much easier to look at different therapies for patients, and figure out exactly what we need to do in all of our patients. And with that, I'll stop there and thank you for your attention.